We are in week two of our co-missioned series, Living Out Our Collective Calling. The first week we started was last week. We talked about Pentecost. We talked about the idea of the Spirit coming together, bringing the uh, gifts of the Spirit The whole point of those gifts was not to proclaim Jesus. It was not to show off our individuality. The gifts of the Spirit were given to unify the church. And so in that moment in Pentecost, the church was united in language. It was united in speech. It was united in a place that everyone could come together to be those people together. We're going to open to Matthew 28 in a little section at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And this is usually called the Great Commission, which is where we get our title from, our series from, Commissioned. But the word commissioned means to be missioned together, to be sent together, to be called together. And so our whole idea in this series is to unpack the places that Jesus is calling us to go together how we can live together, and that we're just not called as individual people, but as churches, as um, believers in Christ, as uh, pieces of the body together, we want to be um, living out our collective calling in everything that we do. So we're going to just read five verses today that shape the entire attitude of the mission of the church and our body together with Christ. So verse 16 Starting there to the end of the chapter, it says this. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all people. This was a huge statement for Jesus to give to his disciples. This was a huge moment in the history of the church, a huge moment in the history of Israel, a huge moment in the lives of these 11 disciples standing there who had just three years prior not known of Jesus or his teachings and had been fishermen, people who had not even been in the middle of society. They weren't senators. They weren't leaders. They weren't rich. They weren't creators. They were laborers. They were workers. They got up every morning and they fished. And they were in that community. And Jesus says to them, I want you to make disciples of all nations. So the first thing that we see in this, looking at verses 16 and 17, these disciples had taken a long road to get here. Their path was not an easy one. Jesus once led them up a hillside and taught them there in front of hundreds of people, but they were there front and center to hear Jesus talking and teaching on the hillside. And he took them into places where they didn't go before, across the lake, into new and bold places, places where people didn't look like them, who didn't believe the same things that they believed. 
Jesus, in fact, took them face to face with the Gentiles, with the Greeks of the region, and said, we're not going to talk to them right now. We're here for the Jews, but something big is coming for you. And then he led them to the upper room and said, guess what? One of you will betray me, and another one is coming who is greater than me, and you will do far greater things than me. But it didn't just start there, did it? It started all the way back in Genesis when God speaks to Abraham and says, guess what, Abraham? You are nobody. And you're going to make my name great. You are going to be the father of many nations. And I want you to hold on to my name. I want you to devote your life to me. And so through the ages, through the prophets, through the kings, through the judges, Through those times of up and down, Israel finds itself here with its Messiah standing in front of them. And he leads them from that upper room into the garden and says, come with me and pray because my hour has come. And he leads them to the cross and he leads them to the tomb and he leads them to an empty room where he appears behind a closed door where they were hiding. And he leads them here to this hill once again. And all through it, you would say, man, they are so lucky to see Jesus face to face. They're so lucky to be standing there learning from the master, learning from the savior, learning how we want to walk in his steps. And yet, all we have are people to show us the way and not Jesus himself. Wouldn't that be so good? (laughs) They worshiped him and still some doubted. And a lot of times we want to make excuses for this because, okay, so maybe Jesus has called his disciples there, and in that time it was not just his disciples, but it was also all the other followers of him, people who were still curious about this, people who were curious to see a man who had risen from the dead, who was in the grave and now was not. Maybe that's what they're talking about here. See, I don't think so. I don't think so. These are not two different groups, believers and doubters. They were devoted to Christ even in the face of their doubts and uncertainty. As Jesus led them across the country, the region, as he went up hillsides, as he crossed lakes and called them out of boats, Peter walked on the water with Jesus. He calls him out of the boat. And there are only two places in the book of Matthew where the word doubt is used. Here in Matthew 28, 16, and in Matthew 14, 31. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And do you know what happens when Peter gets back in the boat? They worship him. These are not two different groups of people. They're standing in front of him, the believers and the doubters. These are 11 fishermen who have no idea what they're doing, who are standing looking at Jesus and saying, I see it, but I do not believe it. What could this possibly mean for me that Jesus is standing here in front of me? And in all of these passages, Jesus encourages those with little faith. He does not belittle them. He does not make an example out of them and say, well, if you had just done what I told you to do, you wouldn't have sunk to the bottom of the sea. 
he helps him back in the boat and says, that didn't work, let's try something else. I'm gonna build my church on you because you're the rock, Peter. Even though you're gonna deny me three times, let's try that one, let's see how that one works. The disciples who doubted when they saw the resurrection of Jesus were among the disciples who were sent to make disciples. How great is our God to send us the love of a Savior who looks at us and says, I get that this is hard for you. I get that you don't trust me. I get that this is mind-boggling. But I want you to go anyway. I want you to do the things that I've called you to do, and I want you to do them with your doubt. I want you to do it scared. And you may never, ever lose your doubt, but you will never, ever lose me. There's an importance in the collective obedience of us as people of God in the church. In my undergrad, I rode on the crew team at the college I was at in Savannah. And I was the guy in the back of the boat, the, the coxswain. He was yelling things at the rest of the rowers, telling them, giving them instructions. And um, the rhythm is set by the coxswain. Giving those instructions, he tells the rowers how we need to move and how quickly, how much you should pull. Because if one person pulls too much on one side of the boat, it turns it. And if you pull too hard, you could actually tip the boat to the side and lose a lot of time. The best way for a boat to move forward is when everyone's moving in sync together. Their oars moving and in sync with each other. When the boat can stay straight up and down and cut through the water. And us as believers in the church, we need to think in that way. That the way that we can move is not by ourselves, by not outperforming another person, by outgiving or outserving. When we pull too hard on our individual oars, things capsize. They don't work right. When we are in sync as people of God, we're working to advance the kingdom in the best way possible. We have to move together in response to Jesus and set our rhythm and set our schedule and set our oars in sync with what he has already called us to do, with what he is doing in our lives. That's what devotion looks like. It's a group of people who are working as hard as they can not to show off, not to be the biggest person in the room, not to be endowed with leadership and responsibility, but to use your gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to unify the church, to bring it along, to further it, and to make it row in the best possible way. We have to move together in response to Jesus' call because otherwise we're just gonna be off balance if we're trying to do our own thing through that. And we look at verse 18 and the dominion that Jesus 
calls us to. Jesus declares that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. There's a reason Jesus calls people to hillsides. There's a reason he calls them to mountainsides. There's a reason that he does the things that he does. Because standing up on a hill gives you authority. It gives you a place of honor among people. And so back in Matthew 5, what does he do? He calls the people to the hillside. Come and learn from me up on this hill. I'd love to show you what a new life looks like. I'd love to show you what the kingdom of God flows like. And so here we are at the end of the chapter again, and Jesus says, come to the side of the hill once again. I want to show you what all authority in heaven and earth looks like. I want to show you what real power, I want to show you what real responsibility looks like. So you don't have to guess anymore. So you don't have to be in doubt. But here's what I did not notice ever before. And maybe I was living this under an assumption. Maybe I was working this out in my own life and thought this was the way it manifested itself. Jesus does not give them authority. Jesus keeps the authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, I want you to go out in my name. And a lot of times as churchgoers, a lot of times as believers, when we sit in our little bubbles and we get into these churches and we get into these groups and we get into this whole mindset of what the church has to do, we think that it is our authority over the community, our authority over governments, our authority over nations, our authority over the people in our community and our church. That is not what Jesus says, though. Jesus says, the authority is mine, and I send you out in my name. In my authority, I grant you permission to do these things. Go and do them in my authority. Because the work of the church cannot be taken up unless it's true that all authority does not belong to the church or its resources. But it comes from God's wild investment of God and Jesus the Son and the willingness of the Son to be present always to the church in the Spirit. That is a mouthful, but it is glorious to hear. That our work of the church does not manifest itself in authority. This church does not have authority because we've just declared it to be a church. We've declared it to be good I am not a pastor with authority because I stand up here and I can write some sermons. Kelsey does not have authority as worship pastor because she can sing. We have authority because we have Christ. We have the Spirit flowing through everything we do. These prayers that we have, they're just words on a, pray, on a page until they are embodied with the Spirit. And the lyrics that we read, the words that we sing, they're not praise to God until they are embodied by the Spirit of God. It's not our authority. And I've gotten that wrong my entire life. I've gotten that wrong because I've looked at that and said, okay, Jesus has given me the authority. 
I'm now in charge now. I get to make the decisions. I get to do this in my own way. And Jesus says, if I give you authority, things are going to go wrong. So I'm going to keep authority, but I'm also going to have a spirit come who's going to give you a place that you can help the people around you. As God speaks, a hundred billion galaxies are born. At the mere mention of it, every living creature catches its breath. In his great plan, forming the trees that would be cut to create the wood for the cross, the wind and the water forming the hill that cross would be planted on. Why would I want that authority when God does it better than me? Why would I want authority over the wind and the rain and the cycles of the season and the nations? But there's so much work to be done. There's so many places in the community that we look and we say, how can we help? What's God doing here? God has given us the charge. He's given us the commission. Here's my authority. I want you to go now in my name and do that. Given the many crises that the congregations face today, including climate change and hunger and disease and violence and economic and racial injustice, global inequalities, the scale of human need is overwhelming. But that's what having dominion over the earth means. That's what we read this morning in Psalm 8, in Isaiah 61, that he formed it, he created it, and then lets us take over under his authority. It's been handed off. So what does a shared understanding of Jesus' authority look like? We have power as a group. We don't have power as individuals. We have power in the church. We have authority. We have a dominion over this earth, not as just individual people, but as the body of believers. And so when we come together as the church, when we are united, when we look at these problems together, It's not us facing them alone. It's us facing them as a church. It's us facing them with the authority that Christ has given us in his name. I picture it like a a big construction site, a big building that's going up. The architect holds the blueprints. He knows what needs to be built and gives those instructions to the builders. He doesn't just give blueprints out to all the builders. That would be chaos. That would be mind-boggling. That's not the way you build a house. The architect has the plans and says, these are the things that I need. These are the people that we need to make this a reality. I need builders, and I need electricians, and I need plumbers, and I need heavy cement dudes. Everyone is that is involved has a role to play. But everyone relies on the architect's plans to successfully complete their tasks. We have a blueprint. We have an architect. Jesus is that architect in our life. The Bible, the instructions, the teaching that Jesus gives, those are his blueprints. 
And so as a group of believers, we're working on the same project, the same building. We're trying to do this the best that we can. But sometimes people grab the blueprints for themselves and they just start running around and waving it and say, I got the secret. I found the blueprints. He walked away from them for a second. He didn't lock them up. He just set them down. So I grabbed them and I know exactly what we need to do now. I've seen churches like that. I've seen people like that who promise do this and this and this and this and that's it. You're all set. We got it. No. Our teaching and authority comes from the body of Christ. He holds the instructions. He holds the blueprints. And he says to us, uh, yeah, just do this. It's not too hard. Love your neighbor. Go and proclaim good news to the poor. Help the oppressed. Seek justice for those who can't seek justice for themselves. You should be good. That's it. You should be good. And so if we don't have dominion personally, we don't have discipleship collectively. That as we come together as people under the power of Christ, as we come together as people who are respecting the authority and respecting the ideas that Jesus has already brought and living under his example, he's told us to do something very simple to go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations, sometimes we get a little bit confused, which is why I called this sermon make disciples of all people. Because nations sort of makes it sound like I have to go to those nations. I have to go to places where they haven't heard from God or of God before. But the way that this word in Greek, it's the word ethos, where we get the word ethnic from. It's better translated as people. It was just anyone who wasn't a Jew. All the Gentiles were ethnos, were the nations, were the people. And so I think that this helps illuminate a little bit more of what God has told Jesus through the Spirit we need to do. That we as people need to go to the people And we look, well, I haven't been called to missionary work in Africa. That's great. Few people are. But what you have been called to do is make disciples of the people around you. Oh, oh, wait a second. I'm a believer of God, and Christ is my king, but that seems really difficult to do. That seems like something that, Someone else should be doing. Maybe the pastor of my church can make disciples of the people around him. Maybe if I can just call people to his church. Maybe if we just had better programs. Maybe if we just had better worship. Maybe if we had a bigger building. Maybe if we had all of these things, people would come here and then we could get the pastor to make them into disciples. You know what I'm going to say, right? Because I always say the wrong thing first, and then I say the right thing, which is that Jesus did not call pastors to make disciples of people. He called you to make disciples of people. And that hurts. 
That hurts because we want someone else to do the work for us because maybe we're not smart enough to do it. Or maybe we don't know what to say. Or maybe because we think that it's our authority, we think that we need to do all the work. Jesus didn't say, if you feel like it, go and make disciples. He didn't say, when you get around to it, go make disciples. The calling on all of our lives, our collective calling as people of God, as people who trust that Jesus is who he says he is, who are witnesses of the resurrection, standing there with their doubt, with their fears, with their weaknesses, overwhelming them. He says, yes, even you can go and make disciples of the people around you. The core of making disciples is baptizing and teaching. That's how we make disciples. Baptize them and teach them. It's interesting to me, might not be to you, but it's interesting to me that baptize is the first one. Baptize, then teach. Because maybe Jesus was wrong. Because what we seem to think in our churches, in our society, is that we have to teach them first, feed them the life of Jesus, feed them the gospel, feed them what it looks like to be a Christian. And then when everyone's ready, when everyone's been called together, when everyone's got their paperwork in order, then we can baptize. But the story in Acts, time and time and time again, Philip with the eunuch, Philip with the Ethiopian, Philip with all of these people. What do I need to do to believe? Well, first, let's get you baptized. And then we can learn how to be a disciple of Christ together. Everything I have commanded you, it starts with the Sermon on the Mount, and it works through those three years of teaching time and time again. He's already commissioned them once in Matthew 10. He gives them authority to cast out unclean spirits, heal the sick, proclaim the good news. The distinguishing mark of Jesus' ministry was teaching. He was a teacher. He was a rabbi. You can't have disciples if you're not a teacher. In fact, the word disciple is student. It is learner. Jesus did it and the disciples did not. Otherwise, they aren't disciples. And so the movement here in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, changes from Israel to the nations. We're not just taking the news to Israel any longer that your Messiah is here. We're taking the news to all of the nations, to all of the people. Yes, the people in your backyard. Yes, the people you live next door to. Yes, the people that you work with down at the quarry. All of those people belong to God. And then he charges them with teaching. You get to do the things that I do. These instructions reveal an assumption that on the face of it is really pretty amazing. The disciples are to do what he had been doing, but they were going to do it with a far greater effect. Isn't that the amazing thing about this commission to us? 
Isn't this the great thing about this calling on all of our lives is that Jesus knew I can only do these things in this region at this time in history. But if you guys work together, you put all your differences aside, if you unify around me, look at where it can go. 11 believers, and then 300, and then 5,000, and then by the year 350, maybe 20,000 in the region. And from there, catches like brush fire. More than 60% of the population were Christians, near 500. Now, the word baptism by itself simply means to be immersed in something. We think that we need the physical dunking, that they have to be washed in the water. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus uses the word, go and immerse people and teach them. Overwhelm them. Show the love of Christ in everything you do. That will overwhelm them. That will bring them closer to me. That will be my teaching in their life for you and for them, if you overwhelm them. The something that you are overwhelmed by, the immersion into something, that's flexible in the Greek. Jesus is not just simply talking about water immersion. That's part of it. That's important to do. Because that's a ceremonial rite. That's a thing that invites us into the group that says, I'm ready to do this. But there are other things that we can be overwhelmed by. Matthew's gospel begins with the prophecy that the Savior's name would be Emmanuel, that is, God with us. And here at the end, what does he promise? I will be with you to the end of the age. The opening of the book and the closing of the book remind us that God is with us in everything that we do. It's Jesus' promises to be with his disciples forever, not just these 11, but all the disciples who move through the region. The Gospel of Matthew forms this bookend about Jesus in his relationship to his people that suggests he's a deity, that he is God. We need to function as a commissioned community. We need to spread the teachings of Christ collectively and support one another in this mission that we have been called to live out our collective calling, not by ourselves, not as individual people, but in the place that we're at, at the time that we're at, with the people who surround us. We overwhelm them with Jesus. We immerse them in the teachings of Jesus, not because we have to sit them down, not because we stand on a hillside and proclaim it to them, but because we love them. And even though everything in our body tells us to hate them, and everything in our muscles and our nerves and our bodies that are tied up in that says, I need to dismiss you because you are a hated person, whether they look like us or not. Jesus says, I want you to baptize them. I want you to immerse them in love and grace and be humble around them in everything that we do we will be filled with doubt and we will be filled with trepidation. But do it anyway. 
You will hate the people around you, but love them anyway. You will be scared and you will be running away from me and you'll be filled with doubt, but do it anyway. Sometimes you will not feel like getting out of bed, but do it anyway, because this is the greatest thing we have been called to as people, to celebrate the life of Jesus and to immerse the people around us in love and grace and harmony. They will make us mad. We will hate them for it. But if we try and outdo one another in service and love, we won't get anywhere. We have to work together. Saving knowledge is diffused over the earth, but it's not diffused in sunlight. It's diffused with torchlight. It has to be passed hand to hand, person to person. You will hate them, but do it anyway.